So when we say a $2 wage plus tips, it doesn't get most servers, tipped workers very far because most tipped workers are not working in fancy fine dining restaurants. They're working in IHOPs and Denny's and diners across America. This is Copper and Heat, the podcast exploring the unspoken rules and traditions of restaurant kitchens. I'm Katie Osuna. I've been exploring the tipping system, and it's been such a huge topic that we split it into two episodes. This is the second part, so if you haven't heard the first one, pause here. Go back and listen to the other one, or you're going to be pretty lost. I'll be here when you get back. In the last episode... I'm not about to fight that whole front of house, back of house fight, but... The inequality is ridiculous. I've always looked at what we do in restaurants as it's a profession, it's not just a job. Something like dirty about tipping. We just took the tip line off, raised the prices. You guys are all getting a raise. You're not gonna see the tip line on your paycheck anymore and we're gonna be taking care of you. Okay, chef, sounds good. You're living completely off your tips. You have to put up with whatever the customer does to you, however they touch you or treat you or talk to you because the customer is always right. The customer pays your bills, not your employer. Call all of the money available to the people who touch a restaurant, call that a pie. Is the pie cut evenly now? How would you see it cut differently? In the spring of 2017, after a year of no tips at Le Pigeon and six months at Little Bird, Andy Fortgang and Gabriel Rucker, the owners, decided to pull the plug on their experiment. It was super disappointing for me. Here's Andy. I really wanted to be a part of what I felt like was a really positive change in this town as well as in the industry as a whole. And, you know, I felt like I let everyone there down. Felt like I left Gabriel down. So it 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 stung for sure. I mean that's you know it's bigger than me. But I'm just telling you like on the personal side of it, like yeah, like it it hurt. It was hard because no matter the intention behind it, the numbers just didn't work. There wasn't a dramatic thing. There was no like someone complaining or it was like no. It's like we looked just looked at the numbers a little bit and said this is not working. They had cut out the tip line. Raised prices 20% across the board at Le Pigeon and Little Bird. And while the sales at Le Pigeon went up 20%, as you might expect when you raise prices, the sales at Little Bird went up only 7 to 8%. We have to end it here. I mean, that was a numbers it was, yeah. decision. It was, it was, it was it's not working at Little Bird. And then it was like, well, if it's not working at Little Bird and people would rather have it go back to, it's going to be too confusing to have it one than the other. That's going to be confusing for the guests, you know, having it one way in one place and the other way in the other place is going to, you know, breed frustration amongst, could be servers at Little Bird that liked it, you know, servers at Little Pigeon that didn't. It was just, we couldn't, you know, it had to be unified in something like that. So it was, you know, it was everywhere or nowhere. So they had to abandon the experiment. 
And honestly, it made a lot of people happy. I just remember like it was it was our thing because we both own the restaurant, but it was definitely more, you know, Andy was the brainchild behind it. And so I definitely like overheard a lot more of the like grumbling uneasiness about, you know, people were people don't like change. So th there was just a lot of unease and nervousness about it. The servers themselves were happier when we went back and maybe that's like short sighted on their part, you know, short sighted on our part for not sticking it out longer. Maybe that would have changed, but that was ultimately the case. So we left off at the end of the last episode with my friend and former Lepigeon dishwasher Lee posing this question. Call all of the money available to the people who touch a restaurant in like any sort of service capacity, call that a pie. If the money coming into a restaurant is a pie, whose pie slice has to get smaller in order for cooks to get paid more? At the very end of our time together, Gabriel and Andy had this exchange that stuck with me. When you talk about the back of house and front of house discrepancy, in Oregon, we don't have a tip credit. And fine dining, small staffed restaurant like ours, where the service staff takes home a large chunks of tips every night is vastly different than like Applebee's um, at the mall, but we fall under all the same laws. Yeah. That if we did have a tip credit, I don't, I think that that would be one way where we would be paying the service staff less on hourly wage, but they would still be making the same large amount of tips. And that that difference would go right into the back of the house's wage. And that would bring it up easily by a couple dollars an hour. Correct me if I'm wrong. I haven't like sat down, done the math on that. But if you you ask for like what could be done, and I but I think the thing too is that like you know the restaurant industry also is not can have legislation that's just for certain like types of restaurants. You know, so yeah, if this was a state that you know you had a lower tip minimum in higher end restaurants, you know, like ours, would that I don't want to say allow us that would free up more payroll dollars to give to the back of house. But, you know, you'd also have in this state, you know, or as you have in other states with tip minimums, like servers working the overnight shift at the diner who would just get housed on it, you know? So it's not, it's not that simple, no. you know? Like it would benefit us, but it would hurt other people. So I don't have the answer. Yeah, it's complicated. It's complicated. Love and tips. Complicated. <laughs> that exchange between Andy and Gabriel about tip credits got me thinking a lot, and I wanted to learn more about it. It did sound like something that, if done properly, could alleviate some of the issues between front of house and back of house. But of course, it's not that simple. So let's start at the beginning. First off, what is a tip credit? You heard about the history of tipping in our last episode and how it was a vestige of European feudalism used in the U.S. as an excuse to not pay recently freed slaves after emancipation. 
That became law in 1938 as part of the New Deal when everybody in the United States got a federal minimum wage for the first time except for three groups of black workers, farm workers, domestic workers, and restaurant workers. This is Saru. Saru Jayaraman. Who you heard a little bit in the previous episode. Professor at UC Berkeley in the Goldman School of Public Policy, founder and president of an organization called One Fair Wage and the Restaurant Opportunity Centers United. She's talking about the Fair Labor Standards Act, which established the federal minimum wage, overtime regulations, and laws around child labor. Restaurant workers were, again, mostly black women. They were given a $0 wage as long as tips brought them to the full minimum wage. And we went from 0 in 1938 to the whopping $2.13 an hour. By 1966, amendments to the Fair Labor Standards Act, or FLSA, established a 50% tip credit which basically meant that 50% of a worker's wage was subsidized by the customer giving them tips. If the wage plus tips didn't make up the full minimum wage, employers are supposed to compensate for that. Between the 60s and the 80s, that tip credit percentage fluctuated. And then, in 96, Clinton signed the Minimum Wage Increase Act, which froze the tipped minimum wage at $2.13, which at the time was 50% of the $4.25 minimum wage. But over the years, even as the federal minimum wage has gone up, the sub-minimum wage has stayed at $2.13, bringing the total percentage of a tipped worker's wage subsidized by the customer to 70%. When this law passed as part of the New Deal in 1938, the notion was you get a $0 wage from your employer, but the employer is obligated to make sure that tips bring you to the full minimum wage. And that's been federal law for 81 years, but it's never really been enforced. Under President Obama, we saw the highest levels of enforcement of this rule, and the Obama Department of Labor declared at one point when they had these highest levels of enforcement that they found an 84% violation rate with regard to employers actually complying with these rules, actually ensuring that workers were making enough in tips to get them to the minimum wage or that they were following all of the rules of a two-tiered wage system, which are complicated. To make it even more complicated, each state has their own way of handling tipped workers. After it was initially established as part of the New Deal, a $0 wage and let these workers live on tips, then basically that was the floor and states were allowed to go above that floor. And so seven states actually decided to get rid of this system altogether. California, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, Minnesota, Montana, and Alaska all decided over the last 50 years to go to a full minimum wage with tips on top. 43 states in the United States followed the federal kind of pathway 20 of those states stayed at that bottom of the barrel $2.13 wage. So there are 20 states in the United States that have that absolute bottom $2 wage. Another 20 are somewhere between $2 and $5 an hour. So you're talking about 40 states with wages of less than $5 an hour for the nation's largest and fastest growing industry. And then like three states that are slightly higher than $5 an hour, but 43 states total that have a sub-minimum wage for tipped workers based on this legacy of slavery. Which brings us back to Oregon and the guys at Le Pigeon. Like Andy said, something that might help fine dining restaurants would probably hurt people working at a place like Applebee's. Though I was making at least half of what my counterparts in the front of house were making at a fine dining establishment, 
That's not the case if we look at the national average of servers versus cooks across several different types of restaurants. Overall, front of house versus back of house wages, servers versus cooks, front of house on average makes about $11.24 an hour, while cooks make about $12.21. That's including tips. If you take out the averages of fast food places, it's closer to $12.23 for waiters and $13.06 for cooks. That's not counting GMs, chefs, or head cooks. The average wage for those is double any of these. And honestly, when I found these numbers, I was a little speechless. Yeah, I was making horrendous wages compared to my colleagues in the front of house at a fine dining place. But the fact that I live in one of the most expensive markets in the country, working at one of the most expensive restaurants, means that I'm looking at things from a very, very narrow perspective. Not all restaurants are fine dining, and when we say a $2 wage plus tips, it doesn't get most servers, tipped workers, very far, because most tipped workers are not working in fancy fine dining restaurants. They're working in IHOPs and Denny's and diners across America. The discrepancy between front of house and back of house is minimal, as far as the national average goes, and it's skewed in a way that I wasn't expecting. But the fact of the matter is that cooks and servers across all types of restaurants are still making some of the lowest wages in the country. For the most part in most of the country, extreme poverty wages. In fact, the lowest wages of any industry in the United States. I mentioned we're now the largest and fastest growing industry in America. Well, we are also the absolute lowest paying. So every year the U.S. Department of Labor releases a list of the 10 lowest paying jobs in America. And every year the seven lowest of the 10 are all in the restaurant industry. As long as servers and kitchen staff are paid these ridiculously low wages, they will not be seen as the professionals that they are. And so we need to both revise our concept of what is professional skilled labor, because I guarantee you most people cannot do this work who don't work in the industry. It's too hard for them. Um, and at the same time, we need to raise the wages so that we're both revaluing the notion of the work and the value of the work at the same time. So I came back to the question that Lee had posed again, but with a little change. If the money coming into the restaurant industry is a pie, whose slice has to get smaller in order for people to make a living wage? Saru says it's not a question of the tips. It's purely about paying people. I think in an ideal situation, employers need to pay their workers livable wages. I mean, if you think about any other business where there are multiple workers in the business and there are no tips... How do people get paid more? The employer pays them more and the employer sees the benefits of paying their workers more. And so I think the weirdness of our industry is that there are tips. And so the assumption is that the power is in the hands of the workers to pay each other, which is a ridiculous notion, or that it's in the hands of the customers to directly compensate the workers, which is not how it works in any other business. In an ideal world, the employers are remunerating both the back and the front as professionals, that they are professionals. And if there are tips or gratuities involved, ideally, both the front and the back are getting what they deserve in terms of both wages and tips. But just paying people what they deserve is hard in a system that's been built over generations, a system that's reliant on tips. For Andy and Gabriel, they saw that firsthand. I mean, to be honest, like, the only person that hurt financially was us. You know, just, it's a tax thing. But it was a lot. 
yeah, yeah. But it's like it wasn't about that, you know. And it's like that's not something that we talked about the staff because it never really. It's not like, hey, you should know that like I'm taking a hit for you. Like, that's not something we talked about. But it's true. It's like the we were the only people that got hurt at La Pigeon. Even though it the if you want to call it experiment the attempt didn't work out. Even if they were a little unsure, I think that they saw that it was not any sort of thing to try and pull one over on them. And then at the end of the day, like everyone did kind of want it to go back that we did listen. I think that that made us, Andy and I, as a unified front, they felt heard, they feel taken care of. You don't get to be in the restaurant business to have a successful restaurant for, you know, 13 years or however long without trying to get better all the time. Luckily, this wasn't a chance that broke us. It was a chance that made us stronger. But you have to try new things. We recently, you know, gave almost everyone in the kitchen a, a raise just, you know, because that's what, you know, because the demand for cooks in town was getting tighter and we needed to continue to be competitive now. That doesn't, like, close the whole gap. But, like, it's bigger than just... <laughs> I hate to, like, talk about a problem and not have a solution. But, like, people love to talk about, like, like the discrepancy front and back of house and just, you know, wring their hands about it. But like, I don't know, you know, I don't know what the solution is. Like, I would love to say like, we're gonna pay all the cooks $35 an hour. Our restaurant will be closed in two months and no one will have a job. I don't have an answer, but I think it's, it's also like, if we, let's just say, didn't have tips and wanted to pay everybody the same amount front and back, we would have bad servers because they wouldn't work here. So it's just a really entrenched problem. It's a problem that's not only been built into the system and the culture around eating out and working in restaurants, but it's been spurred on by laws and regulations since 1938. But when I followed the money behind some of these big decisions, it led somewhere that I was not expecting. More on that after the break. In the spring of 2019, I helped open a few different restaurants within the span of a couple months. You know, the usual process of recipe testing, ordering, frantically working with contractors to get the kitchen built out, and then the dreaded hiring process. We were always up against deadlines and understaffed, and I didn't know how we were going to pull it off. Paired is how we pulled it off. Paired is an app where you, as a kitchen manager or chef, post shifts that you need people for, and Paired fills those shifts with vetted, qualified restaurant professionals. They match people with similar experiences or backgrounds to make sure you get someone who can handle the work you need done. At one of the restaurants I helped open, we were using three Paired pros a night to help us get through opening, and many of them were so great we ended up hiring them full-time. Paired is a great tool to give you peace of mind, whether for a, my dishwasher just called out Friday night, or a weekly shift you've had a hard time hiring for. I would highly recommend giving it a try. To get started with Paired and save 30% off your first shift, visit Paired.com slash copper or use the offer code copper during booking. That's P-A-R-E-D dot com slash copper. The system that fundamentally needs to change is employers really, and especially the restaurant association, I would say, has the biggest share of blame, not so much the individual employers, because they follow a system and a culture set by the big guys, the restaurant association. On March 5th, 2019, the National Restaurant Association sent out a press release entitled, National Restaurant Association Opposes H.R. 582, Raise the Wage Act. 
The Raise the Wage Act is a proposed amendment to the Fair Labor Standards Act that would raise the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour and get rid of the tip credit nationwide. The National Restaurant Association in their press release stated, The tip credit allows tipped employees to earn far more than the minimum wage, while helping to reduce labor costs for restaurants and others that operate on thin profit margins. Tipping creates major earning potential for tipped employees and fuels the high-quality guest service that is a hallmark of the restaurant industry. You have most likely heard about the National Restaurant Association. If you've taken those surf-safe tests, that's them. So just to explain who the other NRA is, they've been around for a very long time. They're the lobby for the restaurant industry. Today, they are led 100% by the chains, Applebee's, IHOP, McDonald's. We live in a situation where the Restaurant Association is driving an agenda to keep wages as low as possible and has put out all this mythology that a lot of small businesses follow that there is no way to pay your people more. The only way to stay in business is to squeeze as much as possible. They've got all these rubrics for how low you have to keep your labor costs. And what's ridiculous about all of that is that food costs have continued to rise, right? Rental costs have gone way up. Nobody talks about people going out of business because of those things. Wages have been the most stagnant of any of the costs. And so why are workers' wages blamed for creating the worst burden? It's not even true. (laughs) This whole thing led me down a very long rabbit hole trying to just figure out what it all meant. The most recent membership list I could find for the other NRA was from 2015, and it was full of the chains. 7-Eleven, McDonald's, Yum Brands, which is Taco Bell, Olive Garden's parent company Darden, Chick-fil-A, Starbucks, Ruby Tuesdays, and on and on and on. And there's a lot of money going in and out of these big companies and through the other NRA. $3 million from the NRA to lobby in D.C. against bills like Raise the Wage Act the CEO of the other NRA making over $3 million a year in salary with another $1.8 million in other compensation, over 100 times the average wage of a restaurant worker. Millions more dollars in donations to politicians in both parties, though 74% were Republicans. All of this supposedly to represent the restaurant industry. If I sound a little bit frazzled, that's because I am. It is so hard to track down this information and a lot of it is really well hidden from the public in formats that are confusing to read and even more confusing to find. And at the end of the day, what does it come down to? There are 15.3 million people in the U.S. who are actually working in restaurants day to day, just trying to do their jobs, make some money, live their lives. How are we, like Saru said, ever supposed to know our rights when it's all so complicated and hard to find? So what can we do about it? Here's Andy again. I think the interesting thing to see is, you know, you go up to Seattle and you see how many restaurants there have all adopted like the 20% service added on, you know, and I think it works there because there everyone's doing it. The culture sort of of tipping in restaurants will change when there's like a groundswell of it, either in a certain kind of restaurant, which we're seeing in, in the, the super expensive high end or regionally by city by city. I don't know. I mean, what's what's next in the restaurant industry? Who knows, you know, everyone's always trying to predict that stuff. If I had the answer, we'd be doing it. <laughs> 
I think it's so important for everybody to understand how much of a bigger issue this is, even than kitchens or serving staff or the restaurant industry. This is an issue of the future of our country and our democracy, that when you've got the largest and fastest growing industry with the lowest wages, think about that. It's only through coming together as restaurant workers and understanding our common struggle where we're in the front or the back and we're white, people of color, immigrant, non-immigrant. We're all in this together and we're all being screwed by the same forces. And so we need people to join up with us so that we can change the law in your state, change the law at the federal level, change the system in this country. Tipping is so incredibly complicated and contentious, I know this, and we barely even scratch the surface. So I'd love to hear some of your stories, the good and the bad, about how the current system affects you. We'll also be coming back to the issue of raising the minimum wage and how it's affecting restaurant owners and employees in the next few weeks. So send your thoughts over to hello at copperandheat.com. If you're interested in going down the same rabbit hole I did while researching for this episode, I've put some links in the show notes. It's absolutely wild. So I've also put some links to ROC United and One for a Wage if you want to learn more about what they do. If you haven't already done it, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. You can keep up with the rest of the episodes coming out throughout the season. Also, if you can please leave us a review, that would be very awesome. Overhead, the second season of Copper and Heat is produced by me, Katie Osuna, and Ricardo Osuna. Our story editor is Rachel Palmer. Head on over to Twitter or Instagram and find us at Copper and Heat, or check out our website, copperandheat.com. All the music you hear is produced by us under the name Gamma Gardens. Check out other tracks on Instagram and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening. Listening.